You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We are in the book of Judges, and we are continuing on in our series this morning uh, called Rescuing the Rebel. Uh, We'll be in Judges chapter 4. We will be covering this morning Judges 4 and 5. So if you're with us in our Bible studies, you will be uh, studying that this week. Um, it It is a good chunk of Scripture. And so that being said, let's jump in. Judges chapter 4. Uh, That'll be on page 203 in the black hardcover Bibles if you uh, have those, the ones that are around uh, your seats. Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hogoyim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Aboyim, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Aboyim, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king, the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. 
And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. For he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And at the end of Judges chapter 5, it says this, And the land had rest for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Lord of the faithless, Lord over your covenant people, Lord over all the nations, we ask that you would teach us from your word today, give us wisdom, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Show us your ways that we may walk in them. Amen. This morning, uh, as we look through uh, Judges chapter 4, and really Judges chapter 5, uh, we're going to look at three aspects of, of, of this, this narrative given to us. Uh, and, and just so you guys know, uh, Judges chapter 5 is actually uh, kind of a poetic retelling of Judges chapter 4, whereas Judges chapter, five, chapter 4 is more narrative, Judges chapter 5 is poetic. It's actually referred to as a song, the song of Deborah and Barak. Okay, and it was, uh, we don't know if it was a duet, uh, if it was a ballad in ballad form, or if it was more like a rap battle style, because, uh, I mean, the Hamilton influence is really strong right now, so it's probably something close to that. But the text is silent on the form, but we do know that it was a song. But the three points that we will explore today in our time are folly, faithfulness, and final glory. And again, yes, we are alliterating like no one's business. Let's start with folly. Folly. Sin is foolishness. It's folly. Sin promises something and always promises something it can never deliver. Sin is also evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet, for some reason, we've parsed uh, sin out. We've parsed sin away from evil uh, in, our, in our modern sensibility. We, we don't always think of sin or activities of sin as evil, but we will think of evil as sinful, right? But, but we've, we've kind of downplayed sin. I mean, it's, like, it's not evil. It's not evil if I do that. It's not evil that I you know, cheat on my taxes. It's not evil that I, uh, you know, would, would lie about this thing. It's not, that's not evil. It's just, I mean, it's wrong, but it's not evil. No, God sees all sin as evil. Anything that runs counter to his holiness is evil. As something 
that God needs to deal with with his righteous retribution. And so we see again in this downward spiral of judges that again Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. To give us a little bit of perspective of this spiral, because it's really easy for us to read these things in succession so quickly, right? Um, the first oppression uh, that we see in, in the book of Judges that, that Othniel helps deliver Israel from was an eight-year oppression, Okay, and then there was 40 years of rest. And then the second oppression lasted 18 years, and Ehud uh, came in and was the deliverer, the judge, and gave the people of Israel 80 years of rest. So up to this point, we've seen 146 years of, of this cycle playing out. Before we even jump into our text today, 146 years, that would put us, if, that, if our text started today, that would put us back in 1876. You guys remember 1876, right? It was that really you know, contested election year between Rutherford B. Hayes and uh, Samuel Tilden, and it came down to one electoral college vote. It was like it was yesterday. I mean, we all remember 1876, right? Yeah, you didn't even know Rutherford B. Hayes was a president. <laughs> this is the thing, is like, it, we, we read this in such succession that we think these things just kind of happen, that, that on Monday God saved them, and then on Friday they had a really bad day, it was a hard time, and then like the spiral continues. When in fact, it's a slow fade. It's a slow fade into cultural sin. And I'm sure many of the Israelites thought that you know, they were not necessarily sinning, but they were, they were just in fact changing with the times. They are becoming more culturally appropriate. And there is this intensification that happens. We see uh, at, the, at the beginning of each one of these oppressions that they were oppressed. But this is the first time that we see that the impression was cruel. It was abnormally cruel. Jabin and Sisera oppressed the Israelites cruelly. Sin always compounds on itself. Over time, the sin that we think is manageable will grow out of control. In fact, the oppression that we read here is coming from a specific location where Jabin, uh, the king of the Canaanites, is, is ruling from, which is the, the, the town of Hazor. Now, Hazor... Um, as you know, uh, was destroyed by Joshua in Joshua 11. Joshua 11, uh, Joshua comes in, puts everyone to the sword, which is the Bible's really nice way of like killing everybody, um, and they burn Hazor to the ground. And the king at that time, his name was Jabin. Is that, is that coincidental? I think not. Because what happens for us is that the sin that we once thought we put to death and then have neglected and have not dealt with will grow. It will come back. It will try to rule us and reign over us and oppress us. And it will do so if we do not pay attention to it, if we do not continue to put it down. It will rise itself back up and it will become unmanageable. And it's the sin of the same name. The same things we find ourselves in, the same proclivities, the same temptations, we always find ourselves 
going back to these things, which is why, brothers and sisters, we need to be always vigilant of the sin that exists in our lives. We need to be aware of our tendencies and our proclivities towards different things. We need to be on guard. We need to be constantly praying by the Spirit to put those things to death. Israel did not, and they continued to sin. They, they committed multiple follies. The first folly is the folly of idolatry. In Judges chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says this. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their daughters they gave up to their sons. And they served their gods. You see, much of what we see as, as repetitive sin in the Old Testament, we would put into the category of idolatry, right? which is the breaking of the first and second of the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments that we see God give to Israel. And, and with their disobedience, their continued disobedience, their, um, their worship of, of these other gods, uh, we also see that the result of that is because they... They did not drive these people out of the promised land as God had told them. So the Israelites became culturally entwined with local deity worship to the degree of intermarrying and interacting with these false gods. Which leads to their second sin, the second folly, is the folly of conformity. With their attempts to be culturally relevant, they compromise the very thing that set them apart in the first place. Their faith in God alone and the promises found in his word. The promises found in the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Because, and here's the thing, this is what sin does, this is what the world does. It will, it will constantly and consistently pursue you. It, it wants you to conform. There's, there's a conformity to the sin patterns of the world that exists. The world just doesn't want your vote, it doesn't want just your affirmation or your silence, it wants your very soul. There's an issue here of worship, and just a little bit will never be enough. When we talk about being vigilant as Christians, we must be aware that, that the enemy, Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil are after our worship. They're after our worship constantly to pull away from us the, our eyes, our ears, our hearts away from God. And yet they fell into a third folly as well. They fell into the folly of arrogance. The Israelites thought that they could be in the world and of the world and that it would have no bearing on them. They arrogantly allowed themselves to be intertwined with these other cultures, and then they were surprised when the things that they allowed in their lives became overwhelming. But here's the thing. Sin is always overwhelming. Sin is always more than enough. 900 chariots of iron will beat 10,000 men every single time. It seems like a disproportionate number, but the chariots of iron described here in Judges are the F-18s and smart bombs of the ancient Middle East. They are the highest form of technology. 10,000 farmers with, with pitchforks could not overtake this entire army led with 900 chariots of iron. 
And the folly of, of, this, of this arrogance that comes into play is that we think that we can just allow a little bit. We can, we can allow Hazor to exist. We can allow Jabin to exist. We'll be fine. And then the oppression comes. Sin takes over the world. Sin runs everything. Without the Spirit, through the blood of Christ, it will completely overtake you. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said it this way, Look at the evil of your heart. You can never conquer sin by yourself. Remember the, sin, remember the sinful pleasures and temptations the world, uh, of the world that besets you. You will be certainly allured by them and led astray. On our own, by our own effort, we can never overcome the sin that exists in our lives. It's too pervasive. It's too strong. It's the 900 chariots of, uh, of iron. So where, where does this leave Israel? Israel is in need of salvation. They need a savior. Thankfully, they have a God who is faithful, who has made a covenant promise with them, of which none of these current Israelites probably would have ever made. Thanks be to God that he's the faithful one. But we're going to look at four characters of, of faithfulness here. First, let's look at the human agencies of faithfulness. We see the faithfulness of Deborah. Judges chapter 4, verse 6, talks about Deborah listening to what God has said and actually summoning Barak to be the one who would help deliver the Israelites. She says, she says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go and gather men at Mount Tabor? Deborah in, in Hebrew means uh, bee, and she was the wife of Lapidoth, uh, which meant fire. So she was a fiery character. She was a, she was a, um, a fiery bee. Uh, she was a great spiritual leader. She was referred to in chapter 5 as the mother of Israel. She was divinely appointed as a prophetess who judged Israel and who would ultimately uh, prophesy the destruction of the Canaanite oppressors. And out of all the judges, she was probably the most godly out of all of them. And the men go, yeah, well, that's, that's about right. Yeah. Um, because she was faithful. She was faithful to what God had said, and she followed him. She judged well. People would come up to her where she sat, which is not the typical place. Usually they would sit on the outside at the gates of a city, but she sat underneath a tree. And she would give out judgments. She led faithfully during a day and time which it was not easy to lead. It, that takes strength and resolve. When evil abounds, good leadership is hard to find. And godly leadership is even harder to find. Which is why even our day, we should be appreciative for the, the good and godly leaders that God has placed in our lives to lead us well. Uh, he's not here this morning. He's, um, Pastor Matt is at uh, another church locally to, to, uh, to be with them to launch a new building that they just built down in Shrewsbury, another Acts 29 church that we have in, in, in Shrewsbury, PA. Um, guys, we are, we are blessed and we are favored uh, to have good leadership and, and our senior pastor, Matt. Um, and so let's, let's appreciate the, the good gift of good leadership, of people who are not willing to compromise on the word of God for the approval of men. 
We should be grateful for that. Just as a side note, October's Pastor Appreciation Month. Do something nice for Matt. It's coming up. He likes candy. So I'm told. Um, but good leadership is hard to find. In hard days, it's even harder to find. There was another faithful presence that we see here. The faithfulness of Barak in Judges 4.8. Barak says to Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And there's, there's tension as far as the interpretation of whether or not Barak was a faithful presence or he was... Um, had, had a weak faith. Many commentators will kind of go back and forth. There's, there's a lot to indicate the fact that, that Barak was, uh, again, one of the weak leaders in the region, the one who would not stand up. But when called upon, Barak does stand up. Barak does lead. Barak does listen to what God says through Deborah, the prophetess. And some would say, some commentators would say that um, in his response to Deborah, he is actually echoing his faith in, in God. If Deborah is God's representative, if, God, if Deborah is God's mouthpiece here, he would want Deborah to be going with him, to give him wisdom, to give him good counsel as he enters into this battle that, let's be honest, he knew he was going to lose. I mean, if you look at just the pragmatic pieces to it, 10,000 men versus 900 chariots of iron. He's losing that battle. But he did what God commanded of him. He would be remembered in Hebrews 11 uh, with, with great, the great men of faith. He also must have been a man of good character for him to rally 10,000 Israelites to fight against these forces. Or at least he was a really great you know, like, speaker. He was a great orator. You know, maybe he, he convinced them to, to lay down their lives for the sake of, uh, of Israel's redemption. And it's ironic that the bee's sting here would be lightning, which would strike and would strike with stunning accuracy. Barak means lightning. And so this lightning would come down. It would be sent down from God to strike against Jabin and Sisera. We see the, the faithfulness of Jael. Right? JL's actions uh, would earn, probably this today, would earn like a PG-13 rating uh, for violence in, in any movie. If you were to kind of recount what she did. She entices the enemy, Sisera, into her tent, pretending to hide him to only, in fact, give him what would be the world's uh, most painful and splitting headache. We don't, yeah, it's a dad joke. It's, it's, it's bad. Yeah, you can... You can, you can boo if you need to. All right. We don't know much about, about Jael's actions or like the reasoning behind, like the why in her actions. Could it be that she was an opportunist? She saw an opportunity to kill this, this oppressor of people, and so she lures him into her tent, and she takes the tent peg and does her thing. Or could it be that she was actually a, a faithful worshiper of Yahweh? She comes from the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And we see uh, through the, the account in the Exodus that, that Moses and the interactions that he has with his father-in-law could potentially mean that uh, that entire line, the Kenites, uh, worshipped God. They just lived in tents. They, this is just kind of how they, they proceeded to live. 
So whichever the reason was, uh, we do see that Jael was faithful to what Deborah had prophesied and what God had promised, even if she didn't know it herself. The final piece of faithfulness, and I would say is the most important, is the faithfulness of God. God is always faithful to his covenant, which is his word. We have previously um, seen through his, his covenant, the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai, the Abrahamic covenant for a savior, and he is going to keep his part of the covenant, his part of the agreement. Regardless of what Israel does, he is keeping his part of the covenant. And it may not look that way. There's 20 years. Now, there's been 146 years, and, and, and 26 of those have been uh, filled with oppression. And here we have another 20 years that's even more cruel. And sometimes we can look around, and I'm sure the Israelites looked around, and they were like, this is unusual. Where is God? Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the, the difficulty and the trial? And it was a difficult time to live in Israel. Chapter 5, verse 6 says that people didn't take to the highways because they were, they were too scared to go on the highways. They went on the byways because they thought that they would either be uh, robbed or killed if they went on a main road. It was a time of, of weak men and a lack of leadership. In chapter 5, verse 8, there was no one who was willing to rise up against Sisera and Jabin. There was no leadership. No one would get the, the shield and the spear and fight against oppression. It was a lot easier to just continue to conform and be ruled over. But we know in God's holiness that God is faithful to deal with sin, and he will and does, as we see here in Judges, deal with sin. Now this is both a good thing and a terrifying thing. It's a good thing because God deals with sin. It means that he is holy and just and pure and lovely. And he will deal with it. We love the idea of God punishing sin. The terrifying thing is that we are sinful. Hello. We want God to be just, but we just don't want him to be just when it comes to our stuff, our sin, our activity. But God is faithful and just, and he is holy. He is holy, and he is just, and he is faithful to give them a prophetess, and a deliverer. Because we see that even though the people of Israel were faithless, God is faithful. And that's true for us today. God is faithful. And God will, as, we, uh, as you'll read in chapter 5, and please read chapter 5. If you're in Bible studies this week, read through chapter 5 together. If you're not in a Bible study, read through chapter 5. It's a great theological understanding of, of chapter 4. We will see through these actions that God will receive the final glory. That all the things that are happening behind the scenes, God is orchestrating to, to produce the kind of conclusion to the story that he desires. The deliverance of his people. Spoken through the prophet Deborah, enacted by Barak, and finalized through the tent peg of Jael, but this would not be to their glory. It would be to the glory of God. You see, God had orchestrated this. What we don't see in chapter 4 is we don't see how God was moving 
pieces around. What we see in chapter 5 is kind of a, a peek behind the curtain that God enables Deborah to speak these truths. He selects her. He gifts her and gives her his word. Then God strengthens the faith of Barak to go and take 10,000 farmers to fight against a military power. And that God draws out Sisera. God is the one who alerts Sisera to the impending attack and brings him out. And God confuses the Canaanites. He confuses Sisera and his army at the perfect time. What had actually happened, and we see this in chapter 5, is that God causes a flash flood to, to occur, which started in the mountains south of their location, south of Mount Tabor, like miles and miles south. There's a flash flood, and torrents rose. And that water rose and went down into this valley. And, and what happens when you have a wet and mucky and muddy ground and big, heavy iron chariots? The chariots get stuck. And all of a sudden, there is no, the engine to this military force, this military power, is stuck in the mud, which puts all of their men on foot. Job 38 tells us this. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Who set these channels to be just where they needed to be to move in the direction they needed to move in? Who was the one that turned on the rains and caused the mountains to, to, to push this water down at the right time when it was necessary? When Sisera thought it would be an easy attack, he went through an area which should have been dry, but God caused it to be muddy and wet and took away his opportunity for a victory because God had decided before they even left his home that, that Sisera and his army would be defeated. God will get the final glory, despite how man thinks he contributes to it. And so we compare and contrast here a little bit uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. What man thinks he's done versus the reality of what God has done. You see, man thinks that evil men have taken over when in fact God is giving his people, selling his people into the very sins in which they are committing. He's giving them over to their sin. Man thinks that strong leaders arise by happenstance or opportunity, that, that Barak decides that he wants to go and lead, that, that Deborah decides that she wants to, to be the judge, but actually God appoints these leaders to rescue his people. Man thinks that Sisera's army got stuck in a flash flood by, by chance. It was, just, it was just a miscalculation when in fact God knew when and where to call down the rain and open the earth to trap the army. Man thinks that Sisera escapes and he finds shelter and an ally. But God had long ago, through the Kenites, revealed himself to them so that one day a daughter of the Kenites would put a tent peg through their enemy's head. And a tent peg was used, man thinks that a tent peg was used uh, to save the Israelites 
from their sin, when in fact, God is just foreshadowing the fact that another peg, a nail, three nails, would deliver God's people from their truer enemy, sin, through the crucifixion of his son, Jesus. You see, God will and does get the final glory. Christ has the final victory in this life and the next Christ has the final victory over the course of human history. Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing in your life is a surprise to God. Our salvation wasn't some chance opportunity. No, in fact, our salvation, as Abraham Kuyper would say, our salvation is indeed the goal of Christ's kingly rule. But it is the primary goal uh, of God is the glorification of himself. You see, the promises that God kept through the judges was to bring glory to himself, to keep his promises before these men even were alive true. He keeps his promises and he will come to judge the quick and the dead. and He will bring glory to himself through his people. So as chapter 5 verse 10 would tell us, we need to recount the goodness of God. We need to recount the glory of God. We need to say it again and again and again to remind ourselves that our God reigns. It says this, tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. Everyone tell of the goodness and glory of of God and how he has saved his people. Thanks be to God that we, like Abby was saying, can tell our children. No, God doesn't tire of forgiving our sins. He doesn't tire of forgiving us. Look at Jesus. He doesn't tire of forgiving our sins. He put our sins on the cross. He separates them as far as the east is from the west. And we can trust God. And we ask that you trust God and tell of his goodness. Remind yourself of his grace and live that out in a way that is faithfully present. Let's pray. Great and mighty judge and ruler of all things, we give you thanks for you are faithful amidst our folly. You are for your glory. And God, that is for our good. We give you thanks that you claimed our ultimate victory on the cross beating our true and greater enemy, which is sin, through the body and blood of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.